0: Now, I'm going to caution you this morning, we're on Lesson 25. And if you saw the title here and in your notes, Spiritual Warfare in the Old Testament from the Flood, that's right after Genesis 6, clear through the Book of Malachi. You need to put on your seatbelt. You need to listen quickly because this is, I'm going to move fast. But you have your notes. And so I want us to cover all of this today. And so that's why I'm anxious to get started. I love studying spiritual warfare because we learn so much because you and I are in a constant battle. And so we like to look at this and see how it can be applied in our life. Now, a couple three weeks ago, you and I started spiritual warfare in the Old Testament and we went back to the very beginning. I'm gonna do a quick review to bring us up to after the flood real quick if you remember we went to Isaiah and we went to Ezekiel and we saw the very first rebellion against God was from Lucifer who was created to be one of the most beautiful angels that he had and he had he had a lot of authority but he rebelled against God he rebelled against God's purposes and when he rebelled what did he do He took a third of the angels with him. That is hard for me to wrap my mind around that he did that. We don't know how many that is, but we know it's a lot. And so he took a third of them with him. And with their fall, with their rebellion, the war began. And you and I, even though we may not realize it all the time, there is a war going on in the spiritual realm all the time that you and I are not aware of. And so that's when it began, when Lucifer and the other angels fell and they began to rebel against God. Now, we know in Genesis 3 verse 1, the serpent now, who is Lucifer, he is allowed to come into the garden. And we know that he tempts Eve. We know that Adam goes along with her. And then in verse 14 and 15 of Genesis 3, God does judgment, brings judgment, and he puts a curse on them. We read in verse 14, the Lord says to the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field, and on your belly you're going to go and you're going to eat dust all the days of your life. And we found out from other scriptures in Isaiah Isaiah, he will still be eating dust even in the millennial kingdom. And so if you need to understand what that is, you can go back about three lessons to see what his diet of dust is. And in verse 15, uh, God said, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Does Satan have a seed? Yes, and he will bruise or crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. And that is the spiritual warfare that began then that will continue now until the end of the thousand year millennial reign of Jesus Christ. These two verses, Genesis three fifteen is called it's a new word. Maybe you have not heard this. Proto evangelium. And proto means first, and evangelion means gospel or good news. This is the first mention of the good news and the gospel and the coming of a redeemer. This introduces elements that were previously unknown in the Garden of Eden and elements that are the very basis of the good news, the gospel, or Christianity. We learn about a curse on mankind because of Adam's sin. We learn that Satan will eventually bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And who is that? Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman. We also learned that God's going to have a provision for a savior for some sin, and he's going to take the curse on himself for you and me. We learned about a redeemer, a descendant of Eve, who will come and crush the head of the serpent. That's Jesus Christ will one day crush Satan's head. Now, the seed of the woman, we know it's Jesus, right? He is going to bring humanity back to their intended position that they had in the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, you can go to Genesis 1:26 and 27. And what did God say? I'm going to make man in my image and in my likeness, and I'm going to give him dominion. He's going to be able to rule. That's what he intended. They lost it there, but our Redeemer, the seed of the woman, is going to give all that back to us. They're in the millennium, and we will then have that full access to the tree of life and direct fellowship with God. Now, Satan has early attempts to thwart God's purpose. We know his purpose, and Satan's going to come against it every time we turn around, right? And so what does he do? Cain and Abel are born, and Cain and Abel know the correct offering to bring because God had shown the parents and he said you've got to have a blood sacrifice. Abel brings a blood sacrifice. He's obedient. God says, "I accept it." Cain is over here and he's out there. He's a farmer and he brings the fruit of his hands. This, "Look what I did. This is my work." And God says, "I do not accept it." Cain gets mad and he kills Abel. Can you see that we're trying to Satan's trying to destroy the seed? because the seed was to come through Abel to bring the Redeemer. So he's dead. God puts a curse on Cain. So in chapter 4 of Genesis, what happens? Uh, Eve says, God has appointed me another one, and this is going to be Seth. And now the line for the Messiah will come through Seth. We move to chapter 6 of Genesis and we have the corruption of mankind because we have some angels that rebelled with Satan. And they, we learned in the book of Jude and in the book of 1st Peter, they want to give up their celestial tent, their celestial habitation. And they want an earthly one, a fleshly one, so they can come down, take women that they desire, and they will... Uh, cohabit with them, and they have these offspring called Nephilim. The problem is, these Nephilim, their father is the seed of the wicked angels. And so we have a problem now. We have a hybrid generation, and it says they are evil. They are wicked continually, and this is permeating society of a couple of billion people. So God sent the flood. He destroyed all of that except Noah and his family because they were perfect in their gene pool they had not been contaminated that's where we left off about two weeks ago I'm going to now go over to the book of Job because most scholars believe Job is a contemporary of Abraham and Lot so we're going to insert him right here so in Job 1 remember Satan's out kind of prowling back and forth on the earth, and he's looking for somebody. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? He is blameless, he's upright, and he fears God, and he turns from evil. And Satan says, no wonder, all you do is bless him. And so he says, put forth your hand and touch everything he's got, and I bet Job will curse you to your face. See, he accused God of having a hedge around Job, not allowing anything to happen to him. So, God grants Satan the authority to afflict Job, but he put strict limits on it. I wish he had put stricter <laughs> limits, you know, if I had been Job, you know, because Job lost all of his children, he lost his servants, he lost everything. All he had left was the wife that told him to curse God and die. That's what he had left. But remember, Job's adversities ultimately come from whom? God himself, because nothing comes to you and me that is not filtered through the hands of God. So God allowed it, but God is sovereign and he has control over all the events that are happening in our lives. Now the suffering appeared, remember Job was covered from head to foot with these awful sores, the boils. He was scraping them and it seems like it's from a natural cause. But listen, all the things that happened to Job were of satanic origin, but God allowed it. So we need to understand that. So, Dave, why do we think Job lived about the same time as Abraham? And I have a few clues for you. We know he had to live after Adam because Adam was first. But Job offered sacrifices himself for his family. He never relied on a priest. A priest is never mentioned. And we get that from Job 1, verses 3 and 5 in chapter 42. Their wealth at that time with Abraham, it was measured in livestock. Remember Abraham and Lot? All right. And so Job's wealth is also measured in his livestock and those possessions. Gold is not talked about yet. Most scholars think Job lived between the flood and the time of Moses, probably about the time of Abraham. And it's clear he lived prior to the giving of the law. Why do we say that? Because in the whole book of Job, you never hear a mention of a tabernacle, a temple, a priest, or the law that was given to the nation of Israel. So they think he's a contemporary with Abraham, Lot, and possibly Isaac. And most scholars think he lived about 2200 B.C., Another clue. Job gave his daughters an inheritance among their brothers. But yet when the law came into effect with Moses, the father only gave the inheritance to the boys unless he had no sons. And we can go to the daughters of Zelophehad, remember? They didn't have any brothers, and they went and said, we need to get the inheritance from our dad, and they okayed it. But under the law, Job should not have given any inheritance to the girls if the law had been in effect. So we think it was not. Because Job, being a righteous man, he would have followed that law in obedience to God if it had been there. Now we're moving to Genesis 12. Y'all with me? Yeah. Okay. Now, 4,000 years ago, God gave Abraham several promises which stated, Abraham the descendants your descendants are going to live and exist forever but I want you to get up and you're going to go somewhere but you don't know where you're going and that's what he told him so in Genesis 12 the Lord had said to Abram get out of your country from your kindred and your father's house unto a land that I'm going to show you I'm going to make of you a great nation I'm going to bless you I'm going to make your name great you will be a blessing I'm going to bless them that bless the curse him that curses thee, and in thee all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. We go over to chapter 15, and he enhances or emphasizes this covenant again. He said, no for certain, though, Abraham, for 400 years, your descendants are going to go be a stranger in a country that is not their own. They're going to be enslaved there They're going to be mistreated. They're going to be oppressed. For how long? 400 years. But then I'm going to punish that nation. We know the nation is Egypt. They're going to serve as slaves. But afterward, when I bring them out in 400 years, they will come out with great possessions. And did they? Yes, they came out with a lot. So he said, in the fourth generation, they're going to come back to the Nate, to the land that God was giving them, which would be the promised land. And he said, they're going to come hither again. What am I waiting on? The iniquity of the Amorites is not quite full. And so these are the people that live in their land, and they're already there. They are wicked, they are evil. But God's going to give them 400 years. You see the long-suffering of our God? So we go to the book of Acts, and this is what Paul says in one of his uh, sermons. God was, in fact, long-suffering. He endured the idolatry and the sins of the nations for centuries, four of them. He gave them rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, and he satisfied their heart with food and gladness. Was God being abundantly bountiful to those wicked nations because he wanted them to recognize that he was the true God and that they would turn to him. But we learn their wickedness got worse and worse and worse till the cup was full. Until it was right to invade, God's people have to go wait. They've got to endure being in Egypt under the Pharaohs and wait, even if it cost them centuries of hardship. 400 years of it now we move to Genesis 16 and Abraham had Ishmael with Hagar has this been a problem since the birth of Ishmael yes it's still a battle going on and so we have a pseudo son of promise in Ishmael remember God had promised Abraham and Sarah the promised son would come from them they get tired of waiting ah oh. ah Sounds like us, doesn't it? We get tired of waiting sometimes. So they have a plan, and so he has a child, Ishmael, with Hagar, the young uh, servant of Sarah. Now, we learn in chapter 16, Hagar, Ishmael is now about 14 or so, and little Isaac. And what is Ishmael doing to Isaac all the time? Ridicule, he, ridiculing ridiculing him right scoffing at him and just giving him a lot of grief this has been going on for centuries because ishmael represents the the seed of satan and here we have over here we have the seed coming uh, for the messiah through isaac Now, remember if we go to Genesis 27, Isaac has these two boys, Esau and Jacob. Do we still have a problem? Oh yeah, we have a problem from the very beginning and uh, Esau attempts to usurp Jacob's blessing from Isaac. So we constantly have Ishmael against Isaac. Ishmael against Isaac still to this day. (coughs) If I go to Exodus 1, Now, Satan through the Pharaoh, remember they're living in Egypt, which is a type of living in the world and being in sin. And the Pharaoh is a type of Satan who is going to persecute God's people. So, Satan through Pharaoh tries to integrate Israel into Egypt. What is Satan always trying to do throughout the centuries? Kill every Jew on the face of the earth and that's what's happening here. If we can get rid of the line of all the pure Jews, then they will become part Jew and part Egyptian. So if we can get rid of all the boys, these girls are gonna have to marry Egyptian guys, and then we'll lose the line of the pure Jews. So Pharaoh was the agent of the serpent, and Pharaoh's purpose was political. He didn't want any Jews around, but Satan's purpose is theological. He has to get rid of the line that is going to bring the Messiah, bring the Redeemer. So in Exodus 1 the king of Egypt said to Shiprah and Pua, these are two of the Hebrew made, uh, what do you call them? Midwives, thank you. Okay. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and they're on the birth stool, if it's a boy, you kill it you kill that baby but if it's a girl you can let her live but the midwives feared god yes and so they wouldn't do as the king of egypt had commanded them but they let the little boys live now in exodus 2 we're going to find out moses mother took him and made the little basket and stuck him in the in the reeds there because she's trying she knew god would protect him for one thing and so she doesn't want him to be killed but the daughter of Pharaoh finds this little baby boy, and she takes him and raises him in the palace of Egypt. Now, I love what Erwin Lutzer says, and we're going to see this another couple of times in this lesson. He says, see that little cradle of reeds that's rocking on the bosom of the Nile? The Egyptian princess sees this little helpless babe, and a tear glistens on her cheek. What a trifle. The destiny of God's people and the promised seed of the woman hangs on that falling tear. And the the destiny of the Jewish people hang on one baby boy. And we'll see that again in the lesson. Now in Exodus 10, what's happened? The, The Pharaoh has finally said, yes, Go. Just get out. But then he changes his mind, and he attempts to destroy the nation of Israel, all the Jewish people. They're backed up against the Red Sea. And did God put them there? They're hemmed in, aren't they? They have nowhere to go except the Red Sea. And so in the next verse, Moses says, don't be afraid. And you're like, you're kidding me. You know, the whole Egyptian army is back here with their chariots and everything. They want to kill every one of us, and this is satanically driven because Satan always wants to kill the seed of the woman who will ultimately crush his head. And so Moses says, don't be afraid, stand still, and you see by faith the salvation of the Lord. Will he part the Red Sea and make a way? You don't fear you stand still and you see it by faith, it will happen. He will do something. He will accomplish for you today. And those Egyptians that you see today, you'll never see them again. And you say, praise God. Now, if I go to Exodus 19, and he has already taken them across the Red Sea, he has already turned the bitter water sweet, he has already given them water from the rock. And so now he's got them over at Mount Sinai. And he's going to reveal his purpose for the nation of Israel. And he does this in the first few verses of Exodus 19. And he says, if you will obey me, what is he going to do for him? You're going to be a special treasure among every people on the earth. I'm going to make you a holy nation, and I want you to be a kingdom of priests. That was God's purpose for the nation of Israel. And he told them that. I want you to be a holy nation among fallen humanity, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. And all the other nations can look at you and say, Man, look, we, know we want to follow the true God. Point them to the true God. But when, he knows, when Satan knows that, what is his goal now? He has got to destroy the nation of Israel. Do everything he can to keep them from being that kingdom of priests, the holy nation, and God's special treasure. Now, we're going to go through many battles in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it's full of battles. And the nation of Israel is going to struggle with sin. (laughs) That sounds familiar. They're going to struggle with idolatry because they go after the gods, those pagan gods of the people that are all around them instead of showing them the true God. Satan knew the promised Messiah is destined to end his evil dominion. So this is the person who's going to crush his head. So we will see that thread of Satan all through these battles, all through the Old Testament, trying to cause the nation of Israel to be destroyed, to be disobedient, etc. So he ultimately wants to... Get rid of these people that will bring the seed because the promised Messiah will come and save the people that Satan wants to destroy. He wants to destroy them, and the seed, the Messiah, will come and save them. Now, for thousands of years, Satan has demonstrated an intense and insatiable drive. He wants to eliminate every Jew on the face of the earth. That's been his goal. And the entire Bible can be mapped. We're in a drama. And Satan's stratagems are repeatedly foiled. So we can look at battle after battle. You failed Satan. You failed Satan all through. Now, are a lot of Israelites killed? Yes. Are a lot of them disobedient? Yes. But there's always a remnant, and his strategies are going to be foiled over and over again. This is a great statement. If the nation that came from Abraham's descendants, this is the nation of Israel, if they are ever annihilated as an entire nation, the word of God would not be true because it was an unconditional covenant. So we, if, it, if you ever hear the whole nation's been annihilated, this would not be true because God said he will always have a remnant and the descendants will be forever and ever so in exodus 32 god's made this covenant with them and they said we will and we do and so they go about their business moses is up on the mountain they think too long and what are they doing they're worshiping a golden calf and they said this is who brought us out of egypt see it didn't take long did it, it didn't take long Now, in Numbers 13 and 14, we're going to see Israel is going to stay in the wilderness rather than go into Canaan. Remember when they went to Kadesh Barnea? And God said, I'm going to go before you. I will be behind you. I will be at your side. There's enemies in there, yeah, but I'm going to give you victory over all of them. Let's go. So they send the 12 spies. 10 of them come back and say, Guess what? There's giants in there. And I'm like a little grasshopper. We can't do this. Caleb and Joshua, who have a different spirit, say, Yes, we can. God promised. But they were defeated. The, mul- the multitude said, We can't do this. We can't do this. And so God says, Okay, you're going to stay in the wilderness. You're not going to go into your promised land. You're not going to have your inheritance. And you're going to wander around for 38 more years. And everybody over the age of 21 is going to die. All the men Now we go to Numbers 22 and 23. Balak, who's the king of Moab, where did we get Moabites? They were the people that were the result of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. So here we have them, and they go hire Balaam. Now Balaam says it's a prophet of God. That's what it says. And so they think he has divine insight And they're going to pay him and hire him to invoke God to curse Israel. But we know that every time he opens his mouth to curse them, a blessing comes out. So we know who's controlling his tongue. Yeah. And then we move to Joshua 11. And here we have... Five different kings that are in the promised land and they're trying to destroy all the invading Israelites. That happens in Joshua 11. When I go to Judges 16, I've got all these surrounding nations again that are trying to destroy Israel during the time of the Judges. Satan is behind every bit of this. Now, stay with me because I don't want you to get confused here. I believe In the Old Testament especially we can see two groups of people the first group of people is behaving like the serpent all right let that soak in they think like him they act like him they want to rebel against God's Word and they want to rebel and persecute God's people all right so we have that group now their attitude towards God's people one of hostility Think of through the ages, the people that are Christians, there's always groups wanting to persecute them. They, uh, they set them on fire. They do all kinds of things to them to get rid of the true people of God. They try to eliminate, persecute, or mistreat people that are in the second group. So the second group is more like the people that follow the seed of the woman. They're not perfect specimens of humanity. Think of King David they sin right but yet they remain as the group as, as the group through which god would one day bring the ultimate seed of the woman it's this group the christ followers that will bring the seed of the woman so hostility envy jealousy anger silent war backbiting murder are all symptoma- symptomatic of a pattern that you can trace through the entire bible And that's what we're doing right now. The seed of the serpent is always going to persecute the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will not retaliate. Think of King David. But ultimately, the the seed of the woman will strike the head of the serpent. Okay, so the seed of the, the serpent, those who persecute the seed of the woman, is depicted in numerous ways throughout the Bible. It clearly reflects a connection to God's gospel promise of Genesis 3.15. And what's going to happen? He will strike your head. So I think we have several examples here. We're going to go to First and Second Samuel. Filled with head wounds in the Bible. Even those who escape beheading get their hair or beard caught on the way to their demise. So remember, he's going to crush your head. So let's look at that. In 1 Samuel 5, verses 1 through 3, the Philistines have captured the Ark of God. This is God's dwelling place, and they allowed it to get out of their possession. And so the Philistine, the enemy, has it. They took it from Ebenezer, and they take it to Ashdod, which is in Philistia country, and they carried their Ark into Dagon's temple. Now, Dagon is one of their pagan gods who is half man and half mermaid, and they call him a merman. So the people, and they set the Ark of the Covenant right by this pagan guy. This pagan thing. Okay, and so they go to bed and they come in there the next morning and Dagon is fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And they say, oh, bummer. And they pick him back up and they set him in place again. They go home and go to bed again. And the following morning, there's Dagon. And listen what's happened to him. Not only has he fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord, His head and his hands have been broken off. You know, he's going to crush the head. So the head's been, and it's lying on the threshold, and only the torso or the body remains. And the scripture goes on to say, That is why to this day, neither the priest of Dagon nor any others who enter the temple at Ashdod, they won't step on the threshold. That's actually in the scripture. Okay, so he will strike your head. This is Dagon and the Philistines. They were perennial enemies and persecutors of Israel, and they're portrayed as the seed of the serpent. And we see that, always persecuting God's people, trying to bring them down. But Isaiah 42, 8 is a great scripture. And God said, I am the Lord God, that is my name, my glory I will not give to another and I won't give any of my praise to a graven image. None. So, we go on to another guy that's gonna have a a problem with his head and this is Goliath. So Goliath becomes a part of the serpent's warfare against God's purposes and people. He's dressed in scales. Think about a serpent, okay? So he's dressed in scales. He's trespassing into the promised land. It doesn't even belong to him, and he's going to defy Israel's God and their people. So here's a picture of Goliath. He's, um, he's from Gath. He's a Philistine. He's about nine feet tall. He has a bronze helmet. Remember, bronze is always judgment, and he wore a coat of scale armor that weighed about 5,000 shekels. So he's got this corselet made of metal scales sewn on cloth so as to overlap one another. We see several things about him that remind us of a serpent. The scales, especially. So Goliath is facing one as a seed of the woman. That's David the little shepherd boy. You know, this was early in David's life. He's just a young shepherd boy. But has he already been anointed as the future king of Israel? Yes, and so Goliath is going to try to come against him so as a result of the stone slung to his forehead the giant now is going to fall on his face down to the ground and David will cut off his head see we have another crushing of the head here in the old testament clearly this is an echo to the fate of Dagon and the seed of the serpent he will strike your head and Goliath is depicted as a seed of the serpent Now, a third like the seed of the serpent is King Saul. And we have now made it to 1 Samuel 31. We still have a ways to go. Don't fear. Now, Saul comes along, and is he going to persecute David? Oh, he tries to kill him several times. And so he attempts to kill him. Is David, though, the one that will bring the Messiah? His line will bring Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so... David does not retaliate. Remember, even when he had opportunity to kill Saul, he did not. So, we have Dagon and Goliath and Saul all in the Old Testament. Saul's going to suffer the same fate as Dagon and Goliath. He falls forward onto his sword and onto his face, and the Philistines come and cut off the head of his dead body. Now... Just an interesting little side note. We're going to jump to the New Testament for two two seconds here. Saul of Tarsus, he started out persecuting Christians, right? Did he think he was doing God's work? Yes, but he had murderous intentions. But due to his miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus, was he radically transformed? Yes, but remember he was told to go to Ananias because he was blinded, right? Right? And so immediately there fell from his eyes something like what? Scales. And he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So the scales came off of his eyes. And remember when he was on the island of Malta and the snake, the serpent bit him. It did not affect him. Okay, back to the Old Testament. Now we're in 2 Samuel 24, and I have a question. Why was God so angry at David for taking a census? So let's look at that. It says, after he took it, David's heart smote him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. And now I beseech you, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, because I have done very foolishly. He went on to say, When David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, who was David's seer, and he said to him, God said to him, Go tell David, Thus says the Lord, I'm going to offer you three things for your judgment, your punishment, and I'm going to let you choose. Which one? So that I can do it to you. So there were three things that God would do. He gave David the choice. And David finally chose, in verse 15, the Lord sent a plague. That's the one he chose, was that God would send the plague on Israel from the morning until the end of the time designated. And how many of the Israelites perished 70,000 from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. 70,000 of the Jews perished because of that. But the other two uh, offers that God made, it would have put them in the hands of a man. And so David says, let us now fall into God's hand because his mercy is great and let me not fall into a man's hand. That's why he chose that one. So if we go to 1 Chronicles 21, we're going to say, why was God so upset and why did he bring this plague and everything? We go to 1 Chronicles and we find out the reason. Satan's opposition to God and his people Satan stood up against Israel and he moved David to number Israel. So what was the origin of David doing this? Satan himself moved him to do that. But unless you and I are being Bereans and we don't go dig out and see Scripture goes with Scripture, unless we had been given the revelation of that verse, you would not have ever attributed David's actions to anything but bad judgment maybe behind his foolish and sinful decision we find satan ever seeking to oppose god through his people so david wasn't supposed to do this but satan moved him to do it because god was so angry because in those days you only had the right to count or number what belonged to you and so Israel didn't belong to God, just like the church does not belong to any man. No man. And so Israel didn't belong to God. Israel belonged to God, to God not to a man. And that's why God was so angry. Oh, now we're going to go to Second Kings 6 and make some more progress here. We're going to talk about angels and demons. And we're going to see the spirit realm for what is truly happening in the spirit realm so the king of Syria and I have a map here Syria's in the red box and then is waging war against Israel has that gone on for centuries yes Syria waging war so we have the prophet Elisha who is there and he keeps God keeps revealing to him the plans of the king of Syria and so every time Syria comes to attack it's not working why? Because Elisha is telling Israel what Syria is going to do, and it doesn't work. Well, when the king of Syria finds out Elisha, that guy, he is the source of all my troubles and why none of our plans and strategies are working, he sends his whole army to go take care of this one guy, Elisha. And so Elisha is in Dotham, and I've shown you Samaria is in, uh, you can see it, and then Dothan is just north. So that's is where Elisha is for the time being. So I think you know the story. And so the whole city is surrounded by Syria and all of their armies and all of their chariots, and they want one man. All they want is Elisha. So The Syrian people sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night, and they have surrounded the city. Now, Elisha has a servant, and he sends him out in the morning, and he comes back, and he is petrified because he sees all of this that is surrounding the city. They've got horses and chariots, and he says, Alas, Master, what are we going to do? You can imagine. He's panic-stricken. And the words we always hear in the Bible do not be afraid. And he says, the prophet answered, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And I'm sure he's thinking, the only person with you is me, you know, but there's two of us here. And the earthly armies are no threat if the host of heaven is on your side. And so Elisha prays to the Lord and he said, oh God, open his eyes and let him see that heavenly host. And he does, and he sees this invisible army, the spiritual realm, and that they are. There's more of them than there are here surrounding the city. So that's that spiritual realm. So then I've given you just a quick little chart there of things that you and I need to be able to see. You and I need to always see, and all of this warfare going on, God is on his throne. We need to remember that. We need to see Jesus reigning as a king with all authority. We need to see Jesus serving as our high priest. We need to see that he holds all things together. And we need to see that angels are ministering to God's people. So those are things we need to remember. Now we're in Second Chronicles 22, and we're going to talk about Athaliah. Athaliah was one of the most wicked women in the Old Testament, Next to her mother Jezebel. Yeah, no wonder. (laughs) Athaliah is the daughter of Ahab and Queen Jezebel of Israel. They were in the northern kingdom. But she is going to become the queen of the southern kingdom. She's evil, but she gets there. But she is in the southern kingdom. This is Judah and Jerusalem. Okay, she is the only female monarch to ever sit on David's throne. And the reason she's able to do that is because she married Jehoram, who was next in line to become the king in Jerusalem of Judah. So, But he's a wicked king, so we have two wicked people. But he is the eldest son of Judah's king, Jehoshaphat, who was a great king. So we have a great king, had a wicked son, and we have a wicked mother over here who had a wicked daughter. And these two get together. So that's who's king and queen. They have a boy. His name is Ahaziah. And he became the king at age 22. But he only got to reign for one year because he's been assassinated. But Athaliah, his wicked mother, was always around to counsel him and all the devilish schemes that were going on. And remember, they're in Judah, Jerusalem. So Athaliah receives word. My son has been killed. My son is dead. Oh, what's the next step? I'm going to seize the throne. And so she does everything she can to seize the throne and murders her grandsons. And so she murders them. This will eradicate the entire royal family, right? So who's going to—we won't have another seed of the woman reigning on the throne— because she kills both of the grandsons. So she wants to take it. She's not even a Jew. She's not. So, Satan certainly did his utmost to keep the promised Messiah from being born in David's family in Bethlehem because she thinks she has gotten rid of everyone that could become the heir to the throne. Now, she used her influence to further establish Baal worship. We are in Judah the kingdom of Judah, Jerusalem. And so she starts installing priests to Baal, building altars for her idol in every temple in the southern kingdom of Judah. And this way, she's following the footsteps of her mother, Jezebel. Now, she's the founder of Baal worship, and she does not have any desire to see the Davidic dynasty succeed. She doesn't want the line of David to continue. So she's rebelling against the Lord, Jehovah had promised David that he would have a descendant sitting on his throne in Israel, and that promise is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here's God's words to David. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I'm going to set up your seat after you who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. Are we talking about Solomon? Solomon, ultimately Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, Solomon, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house, your kingdom will be established forever before you and your throne will be established forever. Are there any questions that David's line should go on forever no God promised it it's unconditional so Athaliah finds out her son is dead and she rises up to destroy all the royal heirs oh but we have somebody really important her name is Jehoshabah the daughter of the king Joram so she's the brother of the young king that was assassinated she's a sister sorry and she takes Joash. Remember the little baby? She found Joash. And she took him and stole him from the older little boys that are over here. That are getting killed. They're being murdered. And she hid him and his nurse in a bedroom from Athaliah. So that he was not killed. Now this is also from Lutzer who wrote about how the, the line rested on the tear from Pharaoh's daughter when she saw baby Moses same guy wrote this now there's a little tender babe is the only thing on which hangs the promise of almighty God in human redemption all the promises of God's covenant of salvation hang upon that slender thread of that little baby that was about to be executed but his aunt found him and saved him one Little baby, the line of David. So in a world controlled by deceit and selfish ambition, there's still people like Jehoiada. He was a priest. And Jehoshabba, who was the little baby's aunt. They have faith in God's will and courageously do his will. Wicked Queen Athaliah does not know baby Joash escaped death. She doesn't know it. He must have been a really good baby. That's all I can say. (laughs) so later they smuggle, he's been in the castle, and after about a year, they go put him in the temple, they figure she will never go to church, and they hide him in the temple, and he remains hidden there for six years, and the queen, Athaliah, is ruling over the land all this time, but the baby is over here, in the temple, hidden and being nurtured and growing, now his aunt, That such a godly woman like Jehoshaphat should come out of that family is a miracle of the grace of God. So Jehoiada and Jehoshaba and the boy's little nurse, they have to wait. They have to have patience to wait for God's time. Remember in Hebrews 6.12, it says, Those that will inherit the promises of God through faith and patience. It's always about patience and waiting on God. So in his gracious providence, the Lord watched over this child as well as the three people who knew who he was and where he was. If Queen Athaliah had known what they were doing, she would have killed them all. She would have killed every one of them. Now, she has been reigning for about six years. The high priest Jehoiada, which is the boy's uncle, he set guards all around the temple. And they're going to crown this little boy as the rightful king. He's the line of David, the only survivor. God kept his covenant promise and put one of David's descendants on the throne of Judah. Athaliah hears all the commotion. She realizes what's happening and she runs out to see what's going on and she's yelling, treason, treason. And Jehoiada the priest, the baby's uncle, commanded the troops, capture her and execute her. Now, Jehoiada ordered he had five military captains they get 500 soldiers and they escort her out of the temple and he said if anybody follows y'all you kill them you're going to take her and you're going to take her out and slay her now this was the most exciting part of the whole story once they were back on the palace grounds where are they going to kill her with a sword at the horse gate And see, that's what brought me to this lesson right here because we're studying the horse gate. Horse gate is spiritual warfare. So I looked at this and I thought, when we have spiritual warfare going on, they killed her with the sword. What are we supposed to do? Word of God. That's how we come against the enemy. I thought this was awesome. Okay, so they killed the queen where the horses enter the palace grounds. Isn't that awesome? They where they killed her so seven-year-old King Joash under the direction of his faithful high priest they start tearing down the temple of Baal they smash all the altars and the images of Baal and they killed the priest of Baal all the people of the land are so happy the city's calm now because that wicked king queen has been slain but because of Athaliah and her husband Jehoram and their son Ahaziah the kingdom of Judah was infected with idolatry for about 15 years fifteen. But the infection's been exposed, and the infection has been removed, and everybody's happy. So Satan's attempt to end the Davidic line had failed, and the messianic promise is still in force. The people learned to obey God's word. Righteousness and peace reigned in the land. Now think about this. It's not going to be too many years from that point that King Herod's going to come And he's going to order killing all the baby boys, right? So you can say Athaliah and King Herod kind of have that same spirit. Got to kill these baby boys. But remember with Mary and Joseph, the angel came and told them to go to Egypt, you know, to save uh, baby Jesus. Now, Mary and Joseph did that. They obeyed God's word. Similar to Jehoiada and Jehoshaphat. Both events display a parent hiding a blessed baby from death that either Athaliah or Herod had ordered. So we have, they're kind of a showing us what Mary and Joseph will do in the future. Now we're in 2 Kings 17. And the Assyrian army has destroyed the northern kingdom. And remember, the Assyrians came in and they took all the people that lived in the northern kingdom and they just started spreading them out all over the place. And the people they had over here, they brought over here. So are we now beginning to get not pure Jews? We're going to have Samaritans and all kinds of people. So that's what's happening in 2 Kings 17. The northern kingdom is no more. And so if we go to Second Chronicles 38 now, now Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army are going to come in and they are going to destroy Judah and Jerusalem. They're going to burn the temple to the ground. They're going to take the people hostage and they're going to take everybody, a big group now, over to Babylon. Y'all following? Yeah, well, I'm trying to go in chronological order. So, next, we're going to look at Daniel and see spiritual warfare with Daniel. There's a couple of really good examples in Daniel. Chapter 3, we see the fiery furnace. Is Satan still trying to jo- destroy the people who stand for God? Yes. And so, y'all know this story. They refuse to bow to the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has made, it's about 90 feet tall. They're cast into the fiery furnace. Remember, it was even put seven times hotter than normal. And the king is shocked. He said, I thought we put three in there. And he sees four. We, I'm sure it's Jesus in there with them. And we also know that they were bound, and now they're unbound. And so he says, they're not writhing in pain. They weren't consumed by the fire. They had no smell of smoke. Their hair was not even singed. So they're walking around in there, probably praising God. And so they're walking around, and they finally say, come on out, and their lives are saved. Now, if we go to Daniel 10, this is one of the most dramatic uh, examples of spiritual warfare in all the Bible. So we're going to look at this one. Remember, Daniel was a man of God. He was probably a 15, 16-year-old kid, that was taken out of Jerusalem, and he was taken to Babylon in the first batch because they wanted the young ones, they wanted those that were probably educated, etc. And so he's over there, and he is now a prophet of God living in a pagan land. One day he received a revelation from God about the future. Remember, it made him sick because of everything God showed him. So he began to fast and pray, but nothing happened until day 21. And so what happened in these intervening days? In Daniel 10, verse 5 and 6, Daniel says, I lifted my eyes and I looked, and there's a certain man dressed in linen... His waist is girded with a belt of pure gold of uphaz. His body was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes are like flaming torches. His hands and feet are like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words are like the sound of a tumult. I see references similar to God's uh, revealing himself at Mount Sinai. And I see some things described like in Revelation 1 in uh, the appearance of uh, Jesus Christ. So Daniel says, I'm the only one that sees the vision. The people with him did not. It was the angel Gabriel, who means God is my warrior. He had the message Daniel had been waiting for. I have been waiting for 21 days. I've waited three weeks. Yeah. He says, what take you so long? And he said, there a hand touched me. That would really freak you out. And set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me. Daniel you are beloved. Wouldn't that be awesome? You're of high esteem. Understand the words that I'm about to tell you. And stand up. For I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me. I stood up trembling. And he said. "Don't Don't be afraid. Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was left alone with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. Do we know that there are demonic demons behind leaders of countries and principalities? Yes. So in verse 20, he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But now I have to go back and fight against the prince of Persia. I'm going forth, and behold, the Prince of Greece is about to come. This gives us a little bit of the glimpse and understanding of what's going on in the heavenly realm. When I leave you, I have another fight with the Prince of Persia, and this is simply the continuation of the battle. These are the battles that go on. So in Daniel 10:21. He said, I'm going to show you that which is noted in the scripture of truth. There's none that holdeth with me in these things, but Michael, whose prince? It's Israel's. Michael is the prince guardian of the nation of Israel. Now, God had responded to Daniel's prayer the very moment he offered it. But there's war in the heavens. That delayed it until day 21. Daniel had no idea of the major spiritual battle that was be, warfare that was being battled. Gabriel was delayed by a mighty demonic principality over the kingdom of Persia, but then Michael, one of the chief angel princes, came to help him. Angels are very much involved in the affairs of men and nations. This godly angel came in response to Daniel's prayers, and the ungodly celestial beings opposed God's angel. Now, in verse twelve, chapter 12 of Daniel, he says, At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, is going to arise. There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time and at that time your people everyone who has found written in the book will be rescued now they're jumping ahead to the tribulation period in the book of Daniel now that reminded me of a scripture we had two weeks ago when we were doing the end time wars of the warfare with Satan and I went to Revelation 12 and this is at the three and a half year mark of the seven years wars breaking out in heaven And Michael and his angels are actually battling the dragon, which is whom? Satan himself. And the dragon and his angels fight back, but they don't prevail. And this is when they get kicked out of heaven for good. And it says, woe to you people on the earth, because the devil and his demons have been cast down to you. Now we're going to move our 70 years in Babylon is over. And now we're going to start going back. To Jerusalem, because of Cyrus the Great, it, he let God lays it on his heart. Let some people go back, and so the first group of about fifty thousand is now going to go back with the and they have a mission, and they're going to do what? Rebuild the temple, because the temple has been burned to the ground, and so they go back, and the refugees from Babylon are restoring the temple. But remember, they got started. They lost interest. Do you think that was the enemy that had them lose interest? Absolutely. You know, the temple is like, this is our, our temple. And God dwells here, and we're supposed to be working on our temple. Do we sometimes lose interest? We get discouraged, and we quit working on our temple. They quit working for 16 years. And all they had was the foundation and there's weeds and everything. And here comes Haggai. And he says, consider your ways. And he says, you need to get back to work. And he encouraged them and they got back to work. And they finished the temple and they dedicated it. So that's what happened right there. Then we have to jump to the book of Esther. Because remember I told you after Ezra chapter 6, you put in your notes, go to the book of Esther. And then when Esther's over, you come back to chapter 7. I know, it's confusing. So, Esther, now we are in, who's in control? What nation? Persia. Babylon's are done, and now we're with Persia. And Haman, oh, he's got an exalted position. And he really is arrogant. And he wants all of these people to bow to him, and Mordecai who is a Jew but it's not known that he's a Jew he refuses to bow makes Haman really mad so he goes to the king and they he concocts some kind of a plan and he wants to destroy all the Jews do you see in Haman the seed of the serpent absolutely so queen Esther is a Jew but it's not known they didn't know she was a Jew Okay, so she is going to be called upon to intercede for her people. So in Esther chapter 3, the king's scribes are called in the first month on the 13th day, and there was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors over every province, the princes of every people, every province according to the writing, every people after their language in the name of king Ahasuerus was it written, and they sealed it with the king's ring you got to bow. you got to bow or it will mean your death. And then in verse 13, the letters were sent by post into all the king's provinces to destroy, kill, and cause to perish all Jews that had to come from Satan. All Jews, young and old, little and women, in one day upon the 13th day of the 12th month. So it's going to be about a year before it takes effect. And to take the spoil of them for a prey. A copy of the writing that the decree should be given out in every province is published to all the people that they should be ready for that day. Now, we know that her uncle, I think it was uncle, uh, Mordecai, went to her and said, it's in your hands. You know, you have got to go to the king because she was married to him. He had chosen her. And so, they had a plan, and she held the banquet and all of that, but she, her, her mantra became, if I perish, I perish, because she is the only one that will be able to intercede for the people. And so now we have really kind of this Davidic line hanging on what she does to save the Jewish people. God providentially intervened and saved the nation from annihilation, and we see the gallows there. Those were the gallows that Haman wanted Mordecai to be hung on, but it wound up that Haman was hung on him with his sons. So if Satan had been able to destroy that entire nation of Israel, this would not be true. So we see it over and over in the Old Testament. Now we're going to go back to Nehemiah, and the refugees are now going to be restoring the walls and the gates of Jerusalem, and we're with now Nehemiah. And so we're getting close to the end of the Old Testament. And so Nehemiah uh, in chapter 4. We have our enemies. Sanballat. He hears that we are rebuilding the wall. He is furious and angry. And he's going to start mocking the Jews. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy people of Samaria. And he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore that temple for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish this in a day? Can they revive the stones from the heaps of rubble? Even the burned stones. You and I have talked about what it takes to rebuild our lives when we feel like it's nothing but an ash heap. And so that they're mocking them. Now he says, can they bring these stones back to life? Tobiah, we have Tobiah the Ammonite who's at uh, his side, and listen to what he says. What they are building, if even a little fox would climb on it, he could break down their wall of stones. Yeah, mocking, ridicule, scoffing at them. So then in chapter 4, verse 7 through 9, it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, so you have all the enemies hear that the walls of Jerusalem are being restored and they're beginning to close the gaps. They're making some progress. They became very angry. That's what the enemy is doing to you and me when we begin to spiritually grow and we're making a little progress. They're mad. All of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Now, Nehemiah in chapter 13, he went back to Persia to report. And now he comes back to see how they're doing after he left. And he comes back and things have fallen apart. And when he returned, he had to take some drastic steps now to reform the nation. The conditions described in Nehemiah are the very things Malachi, who's the prophet at this time, he deals with in his book. So Malachi goes with the last part of Nehemiah. He's the prophet. So what does Malachi get onto the people about? We've got poor crops and a faltering economy. You all are marrying with the heathen, and you're defiling the priesthood. We have oppression of the poor. We've got lack of support for the temple, and we have a general disdain for all of religion. It's a very low time spiritually for Judah. They need to hear the word of God. That's what they need. Malachi is the last prophet that Judah heard from until John the Baptist. And the prophecy of Malachi 3.1 will be fulfilled with John the Baptist. And he said, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. And then in Malachi 4, his last words in the Old Testament will close. Malachi returns to the theme of the coming day of the Lord when God is going to punish all evildoers. We are waiting for that day. He says, Sinners will be burned up the way fire eats up the stubble. They will become like ashes under the feet of saints. But true believers will see the dawning of the new day as the sun of righteousness rises. That's a wonderful day. And it says Jesus will reign as a king of kings. His people are going to frolic like little calves that have been let out of their stalls. That's how you and I are going to act. (laughs) Now, now we've got 400 years of silence, they call it. Yeah. This refers to the time between the Old and the New Testament, during which time for 400 years, as far as we know, God did not speak. No scripture was written, as far as we know. Now, he ends Malachi 4, verse 5. He begins this with a warning, and he's going to close the Old Testament. I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of that great and terrible day of the Lord. He's going to turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and I'm going to smite the earth with a curse. That's some of the last words of the Old Testament. Now the 400 years will end with the coming of John the Baptist, who is the Messiah's forerunner. But during these 400 years, I have a question for you. Do you think spiritual warfare will let up during these silent 400 years oh we'll find out next week <laughs> what's going to happen in these 400 years It is fascinating and you go to the book of Daniel to find out history in advance so I hope you'll come back next week and we will be looking at those silent 400 years and see what happens during that time whoo this was a great trip Yes, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you uh, for bringing this.